Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Haley Knoth, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Haley, it's so great to see you. We don't have Amber this week. It's just us. Just us. I think we're vibing a little bit, right? I yeah, I it's a it's a good vibe in here today. I mean, we miss Amber, of course. But... Of course, of course. And there's so much to get to, so much in fact that I have a little bit of news even here before we get into the meat of the show. And that is uh, a pretty big update in the Alex Jones Sandy Hook defamation trial saga. We walked through the facts of this case for Alex Jones's Texas trial a few episodes back. That was episode 260. And that ended with Jones on the hook for almost $50 million in damages for, as I think most people know, on his various shows and platforms, stating that the parents of the children who were killed in the Sandy Hook school shooting were basically fabricating the incident and were, you know, crisis actors and all that stuff. That trial that we talked about a few weeks ago was in Texas, and there was basically the same exact fact pattern that was percolating in Connecticut this week, and that ended with a jury ordering Alex Jones and his legal team to pay no less than $965 million. Good God. For the same exact kind of thing. And there were, even at the time we talked about this, it was like, you know, Texas might be a more favorable venue for him. He's from Texas. Connecticut, of course, is where this tragedy took place. But the bottom line is that this puts Jones on the hook for over a billion dollars for his various comments about the Sandy Hook shooting. And people who listen to this show often enough know that Jones himself and his various media properties are now mired in a bankruptcy. I would say, just as an observer, I think it's pretty unlikely he'll ever, like, cut a billion-dollar check to these parents. Yeah. Because, you know, a civil judgment is literally just a piece of paper that says you owe this money, and then, like, enforcing it is a whole other process. But if nothing else, there may be appeals, there may be other proceedings. This is now just kind of a public decision that has been vetted through the judicial system that is a repudiation of the statements that he made about this shooting, saying that it didn't exist and saying that these parents were pretending that their children were killed. And, uh, you know, we will, of course, keep tabs on it like we always do. But uh, a pretty significant development there, I would say. Yeah, that dollar amount is truly staggering. But so we have quite a jam-packed show, as you mentioned, Alex. We... Mm -hmm. We talked to Law360 senior cannabis reporter Sam Reisman about the big federal pardon issued by Biden last week regarding just the federal cannabis possession convictions. Sam walked us through, you know, what that actually means. And there's a million moving parts there. So it was awesome to have him on. But I know you have a an interesting story for us on a KNL Gates partner, a former KNL Gates partner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stress former. Uh, <laughs> and definitely stick around for the Sam segment. He's the best uh, on the cannabis beat, and it's a really interesting story, and I'm eager for everybody to hear that. I do want to start with this past week, saw the beginning of a trial that I think will get a lot of eyeballs from 
our big law listeners, which was the Manhattan DA's case against a former K&L Gates partner that has been accused of cyber-stalking several co-workers at the firm after he was fired from the firm, sort of after he said alerting the firm's leadership to racial and gender-based discrimination. So a lot of different stuff going on here. But it's found its way into a New York courtroom, which is no small thing. Yeah. So we got some cyber stalking going on. We have racial and gender-based discrimination, potentially. We yeah. have big law. It, this story has it all. But what, what are the, the main things we need to know here? Yeah. So it began with a complaint filed by, again, this former K&L Gates partner, a former attorney. His name is Willie Dennis. And he is a black man who in 2020, he was let go by the firm. And he accused KNL Gates of basically retaliating against him for raising these discriminatory practices. And that civil case is still going on. It is sort of basically been, been preempted by this uh, criminal trial because a criminal charges were soon filed by the Manhattan DA's office that alleged that Willie Dennis sent emails to his former colleagues uh, containing degrading names, very violent imagery, going so far as like threats against their families and their careers. He most infamously, most notably, is alleged to have sent to at least one Jewish member of the firm, partner of the firm, Start the Ovens, uh, which has sort of obvious Holocaust imagery. And then he also allegedly again uh, again alleged to have written things like i will find you and you should quote sleep with one eye open so sort of very like purportedly aggressive messages to his former colleagues after he was let go i would go so far as to call these messages rather terrifying yeah if you know allegedly if, i mean if, again, if they I mean, happened yeah, yeah 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 but so now we're at trial what's going on in the courtroom Yeah, and that got started this week again in Manhattan court. Willie Dennis is alleged to have sent these emails to three of his former colleagues, all of whom are expected to eventually take the stand. Um, Again, we're recording this on Thursday. Um, That is what is expected to happen. Dennis is representing himself pro se, and according to uh, Law 360's own Rachel Scharf, who is covering this trial for us, gotten off to a little bit of a rough start for him. The famed SDNY judge, Jed Rakoff, who has been on Pro Se before, is overseeing this case. And he actually broke into Willie Dennis's opening statement several times this week, where Dennis was basically kind of roping in a number of kind of non-germane issues, like his own interactions with the New York police, the war in Ukraine, other things where the judge kind of had to intercede and say, let's stay on point here with regards to your claims against the firm. And actually, more pointedly, the firm's claims against you for cyber stalking, because he is the one who is on trial here. Yeah. And Judge Rakoff has already been pretty vocal in this case, right? Yeah. So this has been a little bit of a fraught dynamic, even in the run up to this case. 
So in the weeks leading up to trial, Willie Dennis had been sending both Judge Rakoff, who's overseeing the case, and also SDNY Chief Judge Laura Swain with just personal emails about the case, sort of saying, we don't know what the email said. We only know that the judges have come forward and said that this guy is sending us a lot of emails. Um, and Rakoff has expressed frustration with this, and he has already said that he's going to put pretty strict limitations on how the parties can communicate with the court. And he underscored that at the opening of the trial this week. Here was the quote from him. If I receive from any party in this case any email, I will consider holding that party in contempt of court. You are a serial violator of the one and only rule that I have stressed. He's <laughs> saying that to Dennis, who because he had said, like, don't email me too much. And so it's uh, Dennis's defense is obviously not off to a great start. But a fascinating dynamic here with, a, with a, a, a former big law partner who is now clearly aggrieved against the firm. And we'll have to see exactly how this case works its way through the New York court. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm not trying to be too glib here, but it is a little ironic that this is a cyber stalking case stemming from emails. And now even at trial... <laughs> He's yes. potentially getting in trouble for emails. Doing too many emails. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see. Yeah, we will. We'll we'll keep our keep our eyes on that one. So I want to shift gears here to a a pretty eyebrow raising sentence in the case against a former Los Angeles Angels press officer who he was convicted for charges stemming from the fatal overdose of pitcher Tyler Skaggs in 2019. So Eric Kay is his name. Kay was sentenced to 22 years in prison after a Texas federal jury found him guilty of conspiracy with intent to distribute a controlled substance and distribution of a controlled substance resulting in death. It's a pretty hefty sentence. Yeah, and I, I'm a baseball fan. I, I have sort of vague memory of what happened with Tyler Skaggs. And there have been various instances of athletes getting tainted drugs or just kind of overdosing on, on any number of materials. But like, it's, it's pretty rare that it would go all the way into a criminal proceeding. But what yeah. happened at trial here? Um, this was a guy who worked for the Angels and found himself roped into this criminal case. Yes. Yeah, so Kay was a communications director for the team. In February, a Fort Worth jury found him guilty on the charges, which are specifically stemming from him giving 27-year-old Skaggs uh, the counterfeit oxycodone pills that were laced with fentanyl. And that is what allegedly caused his death. So during the trial, prosecutors had pointed to a timeline that allegedly showed Kay as the last person Skaggs texted on June 30th, 2019. That's the mm -hmm. night of his death. Skaggs' last text was sent to Kay, asking him to come to his hotel room. And the pitcher did not respond to any texts or phone calls later that night or the next morning. Prosecutors alleged, and former Angels players actually also testified this, that Kay provided players with blue oxycodone pills from at least 2017 to 2019. Such a weird collision of 
stories that bubble up in the mainstream press about drugs that are laced with fentanyl and it's often overstated to and it's like somewhat scaremongering but then you know it in the case of a certain high profile person this professional athlete it actually led to his death and then there's questions of liability and all this what was basically the de- the defense of uh, Kay, who is this former Angels PR person? So Kay's team didn't deny that he gave Angels players drugs, but they did suggest that prosecutors were asking jurors to make assumptions based on circumstantial evidence. Their main theory here is basically, okay, well, you're asking the jury to assume that Skaggs got these specific drugs from Kay when he may have gotten them from an alternate source. He had, you know, other people that he would buy drugs from. And Kay's attorney told the jury to consider why Kay wouldn't have followed his usual distribution pattern the day of Skag's death. And that usual pattern was apparently he would leave drugs for players in their lockers. So mm. he he questioned why instead Kay would carry the drugs with him from California to Texas and then only give them to Skaggs at the hotel. Now, while Skaggs' death is a tragedy, the attorney, you know, of course acknowledged that. They said it was an instance of Skaggs, who had been addicted to the painkiller earlier in his life, dying because of his demons. But again, former Angels players testified during the trial that Kay was the team's main connection for Oxy. And... Prosecutors said the defense's theory defied common sense. If true, what's alleged, and of course he was convicted, certainly a different way to look at receiving press releases from sports organizations, but that's not (laughs) for me to say. Um, Now, you told us at the beginning of the segment here that he got 22 years uh, in prison. Um, You know, I mean, that's a pretty hefty sentence. I mean, how did they arrive at that? Number. I mean, I'm not an expert, of course, on federal drug running charges or California statutes or anything like that. So what's the story there? Yeah, there were a few things at play here. U.S. District Judge Terry R. Means, one of the things he asked Kay to explain why he was saying, making kind of contradictory remarks about Skaggs. So reportedly at some point, Kay called the player a piece of shit. Um, among other things, in phone calls and emails. But then at the trial, Kay, you know, kind of backpedaled and said that Skaggs was a sweetheart and a kind person. So the judge didn't appreciate that, questioned that quite a bit. And then the judge also said that the baseball player paid the ultimate price for taking the pills, but wasn't responsible for his own death. The judge said that he had dreaded Kay's sentencing since Kay's first appearance before the court. And that was in part because the judge felt that the 20-year minimum sentence guideline set by Congress was excessive. However, finding that Kay did not show any remorse, the judge ended up tacking two years onto that minimum. So that's <laughs> it- slight change, of course, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really taking in the uh, the whole breadth of the situation there. Yeah. Yeah. And another you know, kind of egregious example that the judge pointed to was the government actually submitted a series of emails and phone calls that Kate made or exchanged with family members after the trial. And they were really profane messages 
They were claiming that Skaggs' family only cared about money, that the jurors had bad teeth and weren't educated. So that also wasn't taken very kindly by the court. You know, unsurprisingly, Kay's lawyers say they plan to appeal. So this isn't necessarily the conclusion to the case, but it sure is a significant development. Joe Biden's recent changes to marijuana policy mark the biggest shift in federal cannabis policy in 50 years. Still, the president's pardons for federal cannabis possession offenders are mostly symbolic, given that the overwhelming majority of convictions occur at the state level. And it could be some time before the practical effects on the industry and on the majority of Americans with convictions are fully understood. Today, we're joined by Law360 senior cannabis reporter Sam Reisman to dive into the policy changes, what they really mean for the industry, and what to look for as this trickles down to the state level. Welcome back to Pro Se, Sam. Hey, thanks for having me. So most of us are, you know, probably at least aware that Biden pardoned these federal possession charges. But there's, of course, a lot more going on here, as you've reported in a few stories Could you bring us up to speed on the nuts and bolts of Biden's announcement? Sure. So there were three major pieces, and you've already mentioned the first one. The first one is the pardoning of federal offenders for simple cannabis possession. Uh, The other two big pieces are Biden recommending, urging that state governors do the same. Um, And then the third and potentially most significant piece is directing the leaders of the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Justice to begin a review into cannabis's status as a Schedule One drug. Under the Controlled Substances Act, cannabis is considered a Schedule One drug, which is the most restrictive tier of drug. That means that it has no, it has no medical value and it has a high potential for abuse as a matter of federal policy. And it's been that way, even though over the last 20 plus years, we've seen the majority of states have liberalized their cannabis laws, allowing for some kind of medical cannabis or even adult use recreational cannabis. Haley kind of mentioned this in her intro, and you have alluded to this already, but the scope of Biden's federal pardons Mm -hmm. uh, seems to be like somewhat limited or a little bit symbolic. And I know that this has to do with the way that federal authorities enforce cannabis laws. Can we talk a little bit more about like why that is exactly like what the meaning of these like federal possession pardons, what that is? Sure. I mean, this will be, I think, intuitive for most people who understand that it's not federal agents who have historically been arresting people for having a joint. Right. Um, (laughs) This this is going to apply to approximately (laughs) 6,500 offenders. And senior administration officials did concede that there's not a single person who's actually going to be released from prison as a result of this. Oh, wow. Biden has said that this is mostly about helping people in their searches for employment or or, or housing, you know, getting these things off their record. But the circumstances where a person gets charged for federal simple possession are kind of limited. You'd have to be caught basically in a national park uh, where it's going to have more. (laughs) I think where it's going to have more applicability is in the District of Columbia. And that's where I think a lot of these pardons are going to take effect. 
Another big factor you talked about in your stories was the timetable of this review that Biden has ordered. I mean, how long are we really talking here? Because federal reviews aren't known for uh, being super speedy. (laughs) Sure. The simple answer is nobody knows, but we can look to the last time that uh, the DEA was petitioned to take another look at cannabis's Schedule One status. And that was when a nurse practitioner in 2009 submitted a petition. And then two governors, the governors of Rhode Island and Washington State, submitted a petition asking the DEA, would you please review cannabis's status as a Schedule One substance and see if this still makes sense? Back then, it took the agency about six years to deliver its response in 2016, Oof. saying that the Schedule One designation was still appropriate. Now, obviously, that was a petition that came from a citizen and two state governors. Right. Doesn't quite have the same impact as coming from the president. But senior administration officials were also very clear that Biden isn't asking for any particular outcome. He's just asking for a review. So how does that review um, proceed? The Department of Justice, specifically the DEA, is going to begin gathering all the information that considers pertinent from local and state uh, law enforcement and regulatory agencies. And the FDA, a a bureau of HHS, is going to start looking at the scientific literature and seeing, well, has anything really changed in the the science and in studies that have been done on marijuana to give us a more informed sense of whether this Schedule One status still applies? So again, we don't know how long it's going to take, but I mean, uh, one source I spoke to, admittedly a complete guess, said 18 months at, at a minimum. And I don't know how much stock to put in that. That's obviously just one person's opinion. But again, the last time the agencies undertook a review uh, of cannabis' Schedule One status, it began with a 2009 petition and it ended with a 2016 answer of no, Schedule One is still <laughs> applicable for cannabis. So there's a wide variance of outcomes here, both in terms of like what could happen and also how long it could take, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Now, there is also the chance, and you wrote about this a little bit, that marijuana could be moved to be a Schedule II drug, which is the same tranche that contains uh, cocaine, fentanyl, methamphetamine. And I can't imagine that that would boost the cannabis legalization push that is kind of sweeping across the nation. What would a sort of Schedule II designation look like and what would it mean for that legalization effort? Well, it would mean from the federal perspective, cannabis is now only as dangerous as cocaine and it would would treat it the same way it treats cocaine. Yeah. So it it wouldn't do much to address this, you know, widening gap between federal policy and state policy in the states that have liberalized their cannabis laws. It could present additional headaches because once it's a schedule two substance, pharmaceutical companies can say, well, we're developing our cannabis drugs, and then you have this potential competition from the pharmaceutical sector. You also have a new overlay, potentially, of FDA regulations. The FDA obviously doesn't regulate state legal cannabis because from the federal perspective, it's all illegal. But if you have a Schedule II designation, suddenly you do have a new sheriff in town, so to speak, and then you have a new set of Uh, of of compliance headaches. Um, It also doesn't do a lot to help the bottom lines of cannabis companies. Uh, There's a provision of the federal tax code called Section 280E that says anyone dealing in a Schedule 1 or Schedule 2 substance can't take ordinary business deductions. Drug dealers should not be able to take business deductions was the idea behind 
passing this particular piece of the tax code. That's been a major headache for cannabis companies who have huge tax liabilities. And a Schedule II reassignment would do nothing to fix that. And as far as other outcomes, you know, Schedule Three, Four, and Five, these are these are also tightly controlled by the FDA. Anyone who's you know had trouble purchasing Sudafed during allergy season, you know, will know that <laughs> it, it, there are still levels of restriction. That if you're a medical cannabis patient or a cannabis consumer in a state where it's legal, it may be easier to get weed than it is to get some of these Schedule Three, Four, Five medicines, depending on how your state chooses to regulate those. Yeah, that's funny. I guess I can just, you know, order some here in California. I could order weed <laughs> via an app and then have it delivered. But I have to, you know, go up to the pharmacy counter and give them all of my information and swear on my firstborn that I won't use the real, the real Sudafid, the, the real good good <laughs> for anything uh, illicit. But so... You know, you touched on this a little bit, but there's this tension between what's going on at the federal level and then how states are treating this. And you wrote a little bit about how cannabis opponents to legalization are now turning more to litigation and they want to keep some of these reforms off of ballots. What does all of this mean? What are we seeing at the state level? A lot of uh, efforts to legalize cannabis have, via ballot referendum, have been challenged under uh, what's usually called the single subject rule, which is a provision of state laws that usually say, if you're going to try to change the law or change the state constitution through a ballot referendum, you can really only ask voters to vote yes or no on one thing at a time. And some of these legalization proposals are very comprehensive. They include provisions about how it's going to be taxed, how it's going to be regulated, how it's going to, if it's amending existing medical marijuana law, how it's going to tweak those existing medical marijuana laws. So opponents to legalization brought a number of lawsuits beginning in 2020 and continuing into this year, where they said that these ballot referenda essentially are asking voters to do too many things and they should be stricken uh, as, as unconstitutional. And this has worked in some states, um, but not in all. So there are going to be five states this November where voters are going to get a chance to decide whether or not to legalize recreational marijuana. Those states are Arkansas, Maryland, Missouri, North Dakota, and South Dakota. And I'll mention as an aside that in Oklahoma, there was litigation that was brought to uh, delay or change the, the ballot referendum. It did end up playing out so long that there won't be time to put it on the ballot in November. But the Oklahoma Supreme Court said it's going to be on the ballot at the next election, whether that's a special election or just the next calendared election, uh, we don't know. So in that case, anti-legalizers were successful in delaying the vote, but in not preventing it. So you've already alluded to there's obviously this delicate dance between state power and executive power, and this bit of policy falls between them in a delicate way. I mean, where should we be looking? Like, whose court is the ball in at this point? Right. So so Biden asked state governors to follow his suit and pardon people who have been convicted of simple cannabis possession. And already that's received pushback from some conservative governors yep. in Nebraska and in Idaho. Idaho, which, by the way, has some of the strictest uh, cannabis laws in the United States, you know, saying that essentially this is a misguided policy and that they we're not going to go through with it. The other thing I'll say in terms of where in whose court is the ball, when the FDA undertakes a review into whether something has any medical properties or any medical use, they're usually not looking at a whole plant. They're usually looking at a discrete chemical compound that is in the plant. 
Uh, for instance, CBD, there is one of hundreds of cannabinoids that are found in the cannabis plant. There is a Schedule five CBD-based drug called Epidiolex for epilepsy, but that's an example of a discrete chemical in the cannabis plant that the FDA said for this discrete use treating epilepsy, it has utility and therefore it is not a Schedule one drug. But the FDA is not usually in the position of having to declare an entire plant which yeah. can be processed and consumed in all sorts of ways for all sorts of different reasons, whether it has the potential medical use or whether it has potential to be abused. So it's, it's going to be, a, I think, an interesting lift for them having to review kind of holistically the plant as a whole and whether and return a recommendation as to whether or not it can be deemed you know, safe, whether it can be deemed without harm uh, and whether it can be deemed medically useful. Uh, and the last thing I'll say, we talked about scheduling it to a different tier, but there is also descheduling. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this. Yeah. Under the Controlled Substances Act, alcohol and tobacco are expressly descheduled, even though they are psychoactive substances, even though they are habit forming, even though they obviously uh, can be abused. But when the Controlled Substances Act was passed, those were expressly removed from the CSA's uh, ambit. That's why the DEA uh, it has nothing to do with them. We have a whole other agency that is tasked with alcohol and tobacco. <laughs> so, you know, I think I think that's just something to keep in mind when we're sort of swimming in all the different possible outcomes of this review. There is a precedent for just taking it entirely out of uh, the Controlled Substances Act entirely. But it'll be very interesting to see how the relevant government agencies, I guess specifically the DEA, would arrive at that uh, decision. Um, it'll certainly be interesting to watch as this all unfolds. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And we will, I'm sure, be uh, continuing to follow your reporting, which if any listeners have not read Sam's stories, highly recommend heading over to the website, giving those a look. Thank you so much, Sam, for being on Pro Se today. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, we were so chock-a-block full of interesting, fascinating news stories. I think that's going to bring us to a close this week. Haley, thanks so much for uh, joining me again. This was fun. Thank you, Alex. Always a good time. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's always a good time, but it was a good time <laughs> today. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, yes, thank you so much again. And I, of course, want to thank all the people who helped make the show possible that is uh, led by our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Sam Reisman, and contributing reporters, Rachel Scharf, Lauren Castle, and Dave Simpson. Music from the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform so that other people can find us. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about on today's show, just head to our website, that is law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and join us again next week.